All right. We start making our way back to our seat. What's up, Jack Carlson? Yeah. Good morning. I'm Tyler. I'm one of the. Oh, thanks. That's so nice. I think that was KP if I was to put my. No? John Caliguire. Okay. Sweet. Uh, I'm Tyler. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Boulder Valley. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm really excited for what we get to jump into, and uh, it's going to be a good one. So let's get going. On October 7th, 2023, the Palestinian Sunni Islamist group called Hamas, which is a U.S. designated foreign terrorist organization, led a surprise attack against Israel from the Gaza Strip by land, sea, and air. The assault came on a Jewish holiday 50 years after the Egypt-Syria surprise attack that sparked the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And the attacks against Israel have no precedent in the 16 years that Israel has been controlling Hamas. The nature of the violence stunned Israelis, and stories of kidnapping and infanticide dominated the news headlines for days as Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, declared war against Hamas. As of recent reports, over 1,200 Israelis, including women, children, and infants, were killed, and another 240 were kidnapped. Gaza, which is a small territory of about 139 square miles, or about the size of the city of Detroit, has over 2 million residents and was already experiencing a humanitarian crisis before the current war broke out. As a result of a 16-year blockade by Israel, over 95% of the population cannot access clean water, while more than half of all Gazans depend on international assistance for basic services. So Israel's declaration of war against Hamas has further worsened an already dire situation in the Gaza Strip. And as violence escalates, some injured civilians and foreign nationals in Gaza have been able to leave the territory through what people have been calling humanitarian pauses. But there's still an outcry for a full ceasefire as the death toll continues to mount. Since October 7th, over 11,000 Gazans, two-thirds of them women and children, have been killed, while some 2,600 others have been reported missing. Now, I say all of that, and I'm sure that there's a lot of emotions in the room. Maybe you're upset by what I said, or upset by what I didn't say, and whether I was fair to both sides or not. And this is a complex issue that pulls on the phrase of an already polarized society. And everyone has an opinion, because in my opinion, it's in the center of the world. And there's tons of questions going around of who is to blame. But all of those questions of who is to blame actually are not helping. This has been a millennia-old conflict. And so I'm not bringing this to the forefront today to say, okay, we're gonna solve it, nor am I trying to tell you how to think. Far too much damage has been done in trying to give simple solutions to very complex and nuanced problems. And so my intent today is simply to just pose one question, and that question is 2023 that much different than the world Jesus entered into? More specifically, is the story of Christmas, one that's often romanticized, decorated up, is it more like Gaza or the Hallmark Channel. We're currently in our series called Oh Holy Sight, 
kind of a play on O Holy Night. But the idea is that we're looking at the Advent story or the story of Christmas and the biblical characters and how they successfully or unsuccessfully see, hear, and obey God. And hopefully by looking at them as a template, we can learn some things for 2024 because 2024 is the year that we as a people are going to go. We're going to be sent out. And so we're using them as our model to say if they did this and they were able to see the biggest historical moment of all time, then maybe, maybe in 2024 we could learn something from them and we would see God made manifest again today. That we would become people with holy sight. And so today we're going to read a text that we've been kind of sitting in for a couple weeks. It's a familiar text. It's the story, we're part of the story of Christmas. But today we're going to look at a different angle and bent to it. Because today we're asking the question of what happens when holy sight goes awry. So I'm going to invite Drew and Jess McMillan up on the stage. They're going to read our scripture for today. Drew and Jess, I've, man, there's very few people in the world that I love more than these two people. Um, I have known them for over a decade. We met in college, and uh, I've had the privilege of seeing them meet each other as friends, and then they get married, and now they have a beautiful baby boy. So, um, yeah, lead us. Thanks. So, yeah, Tyler said we're in Matthew chapter 2, if you want to follow along. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For, he saw, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chiefs, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained them from what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, Bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Thanks, guys. Is 2023 that much different than the story of Christmas? A war-torn world, a world where where political leaders cling to power and will do anything they can to keep it. A world where infanticide terrorizes the people. And if Christmas is a story that resembles 2023, then is it possible we could learn something? Is it possible that in this story we might find a, a nugget or a piece of information that would help us cultivate this holy site that we're longing for? Or more pointed for today, the question is, what lessons can be learned from the person of Herod? What happens when holy sight goes awry and leads to the killing of babies? That's where we're headed as we do a deep dive into Herod. So let's start with a little biography. Also known as Herod the Great, Herod was a prominent figure in ancient Judea and a client king of the Roman Empire. He is known for his complex and often brutal reign during the first century BCE. Herod was born around 73 BCE in a region south of Judea. He came from a family that had converted to Judaism. It's really interesting, maybe not something you would think of. In 40 BCE, the Roman Senate appointed Herod as king of Judea, a position he held until his death. His reign was marked by Roman support, and he ruled with the title, get this, King of the Jews. Interesting little tidbit, because if you know how the story in Matthew ends, Jesus is on a cross, and there's a sign inscribed above him. And what does that sign say? King of the Jews. Fascinating. So no doubt Matthew is making a comparison here, and more on that in a minute, but... Herod was known for his ambitious building projects, which included the expansion and renovation of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. His work on the temple was particularly significant in Jewish history and remains a lasting symbol of his legacy. His rule was marred by acts of cruelty and paranoia. He executed several members of his own family, including his wife and sons, out of a fear of his potential rivals to his throne. The most infamous of these acts was the Massacre of the Innocents, which is described in the New Testament text we just read, where he ordered the slaughter of male infants under the age of two in Bethlehem to eliminate the prophesied threat to his reign. Herod died in 4 BCE of old age and health complications, creating a vacuum of power that led to division amongst his sons for succession. And so as we approach the text in Matthew, its its complexity can't be overstated. In this one person of Herod, We see complexity, nuance, layers. There's a lot that Matthew's trying to do here. And in this one character of Herod, we see both the greatest, one of the greatest heroes of the Jewish faith and one of its greatest villains. The man who is called King of the Jews is the same man who renovates the Jewish temple and murders babies. And Matthew knows this when he writes the gospel because for any first century Jew, it would conjure up images of another story of infanticide, one out of Egypt with a man named Pharaoh. And so part of what Matthew is doing in this story is he's comparing Jesus to Moses and saying Jesus is the new Moses and he's going to lead his people out of slavery. 
but he's also telling the story that Jesus, unlike Herod, is the real king of the Jews. But Jesus' kingdom will not come through slaughtering innocent, but through the willingness of himself to be slaughtered innocently. This king of the Jews will not renovate a temple, but will resurrect it in three days. This king of the Jews will not cause chaos and division with his death, but unity, peace, and a kingdom that has no end. And so as we examine Herod and engage in this quest today to get, let's say, LASIK surgery or LASIK um, surgery for our holy site, another set of questions emerge. Questions like, okay, so Herod was you know, convert to Judaism as a family. So was that real? Does that mean that he could hear from God? Could he not hear from God? Was he unable? Was he unwilling? Did he think he was hearing from God, but maybe he wasn't? All of those are good questions, maybe questions that we even have of ourselves, but they're really just grasping at something else. They're getting at a deeper question. And that question is, how does the king of the Jews become a baby murderer? What leads someone from Herod the Great to Herod the Murderer? Or put in another way, how does someone become a monster? For that, let me tell you the story of another monster, Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley bore the label of the most evil woman in Britain. Hindley was notorious in Britain, uh, along with her lover, Ian Brady, and were jailed for life in 1966 for killing two children. Later, she confessed to torturing and killing three other children. In the press, she's often referred to as a beast, an evil monster, and the most evil woman of our time. Our natural explanation for people like Hinley is there must just be something wrong with her. She must just be an evil person. She must com enjoy committing atrocities because no normal person would do that. But this classification of Hindley as an evil person makes it shocking to learn that before she lured those five children to their death, she actually lived an exemplary life and was even in demand as a babysitter. Even throughout her imprisonment, she showed no criminal tendencies, and experts were unanimous in their opinion that she posed no threat to society. The detective who actually took her confession in 1986 had this startling conclusion. Had she not met Ian Brady and fallen in love with him, she would have gotten married and had a family and been like any other member of the general public. The point is that the evidence seems to suggest that she was, in very significant ways, just like you and me. But that is jarring to hear. Because we often believe that evil people do evil things for no obvious reasons. They must just be sadistic and evil for the sake of it. The problem with that, however, is that in most cases, it simply is not true. Roy Baumester, an American social psychologist, argues that given the correct circumstances, most, if not all people, will engage in acts that are profoundly evil. He argues that ordinary people engage in evil acts because they find them useful to their own goals or ideological hopes. They simply do not take seriously the harms that their actions cause others. He said that only 5%, only 5% of people engaging in evil actions actually enjoy what they're doing. And even for those 5%, they start with a, a process that starts and begins in this like numbness and aversion and revulsion to the action, leads to like a dampening of that through habituation, and then finally and eventually 
only for 5% leads to a sense of pleasure. And so despite our best efforts at initially classifying and characterizing Myra Hindley as an evil person, it doesn't really appear that that's the case. We want her to be a psychopath so badly, but she may not be. Now, none of this is intended in any way to minimize or justify her actions, nor is it a way to say that evil doesn't exist, because let's be clear, evil does exist, her actions were inexcusable, and they were wrong. But it does appear that using the term and calling her an evil person may be inaccurate. Because if Baumeister and the detectives are correct, then we have a lot more in common with her than we'd like to believe. Many, if not most of us, have a propensity to be dragged into the darkness rather than to move away from it. All of us, all of us have the potential to become a monster. And Hindley was just like us, and yet right up to her death, she remained a monster in the eyes of the public. For many, she was even the epitome of evil. How is that possible? Well, one of the ways we try to make sense of horrendous actions is through what Dr. James Waller, who's a professor of Holocaust and genocide studies, calls linguistic dehumanization. It's a lot of letters for two words, but linguistic dehumanization. He argues it's far easier to make sense of evil actions when they're carried out by monsters and not by human beings. And so in a strange way, it's as if we need Myra to be a monster in order to make sense of her horrific actions. In the same way, we need Herod to be a monster in order to make sense of how does someone go from Herod the Great to Herod the Murderer. But making a monster implies that their crimes are unpardonable and the monsters don't deserve our forgiveness. But history will also tell us that this linguistic dehumanization has a tremendous danger. It is often the first step of genocide which catalyzes hate. The Jews were called bacilli, parasites, and vermin by the Nazis. In Rwanda, the Hutus called the Tutsis cockroaches or insects. As Scottish theologian John Swinton writes, when we write people off as unforgivable, we initiate a process that turns people into monsters. Consequences are dangerous. We don't treat monsters in the same way we treat people. People we respect. Monsters we fear and often seek to destroy. And as terrifying as it is for us to encounter unspeakable evil in the world, it is far more terrifying to encounter unspeakable evil within ourselves. And if we're honest, we see that at times we are both the human and the monster. All of us have seen glimpses of that shadow side. We've all seen the words, actions, and thoughts inside of us that leave us to question, where in the world did that come from? What is that? The thoughts that feel subhuman, the emotions that are more primal than rational, the words that dehumanize ourselves or others. There's an initial denial that we say we, could, we would never think or do or act in that way. Monsters may be capable of doing that, but not us. We're not like the monsters. We're the good people. We come up with excuses why we do it. We blame someone else that they pushed us to that point. We sometimes even point the supernatural finger at things like Satan. But no matter our defense mechanism, we cannot escape the reality that we all possess a deep propensity for evil. 
all of us, no matter how hard you try to just be a good person. There is a moment for all of us when you recognize there is evil inside of you. And no amount of comparing yourself to another is going to fix that problem. Putting yourself on a spectrum with Herod and Myra doesn't do anything because you're still on the spectrum. And so much like we need Myra and Herod to be a monster in order to make sense of their horrific actions, we kind of also need ourselves to be a monster, to make sense of ourselves, to justify our actions, our thoughts, our feelings. But this disbelief and hiding leads to deep resentment and shame. And so we turn to linguistic dehumanization again as our remedy, only this time we use it on ourselves to protect us from ourselves. We use words like addict, cheater, bigot, psychopath, pervert, monster. But these classifications only further worsen the problem and keep us trapped in a prison of self-condemnation. It's a prison we've created to keep the monster at bay, not realizing that we've locked the monster inside there with us. And there lies a deep danger in doing so because we don't treat monsters in the same way we treat people. People we respect, monsters we fear, and often seek to destroy. And I'm gonna pause right there, because for some of us in this room, the self-condemnation has been a prison. And much of what you do to destroy the monster has only brought you more shame, and you do all you can to avoid the reality. You do all you can to avoid the shame. But maybe as I was speaking, you couldn't help but feel the darkness drape over you as it feels like a blanket as you come face to face with the monster within and the reality that you are locked up with that. The anxiety, fear, and shame well up for the fear of who you really are and the fear that if anyone else truly knew, they'd call you much worse things than Herod. And so Jesus, we come to you now in our shame, not really knowing what to pray for, but knowing that your word says that your spirit intercedes for us when all we have is groans. It also says that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so we're asking for faith we're asking for forgiveness. We can't save ourselves from this evil, but you can. And no one is off limits. I recognize that salvation is a possibility for all of us, no matter where we've been or what we have done. Because when you came down to die for us on the cross, you came to die for Herod and Myra and me. And that needs to be good news. I need that to be true because I know me, and even though I, I may feel like I'm far better off than Myra, I'm far better off than Herod, I still know me. And it terrifies me. So I confess and say I'm done running for myself. I'm done hiding. I'm done using linguistic dehumanization on myself as a fig leaf to protect. I bring my full self before you. 
asking for forgiveness, knowing that you came to die for that. Because you say I'm worth that. And I know that you promised to forgive me of all my unrighteousness. Amen. Self-preservation became Herod's main goal. Maybe his only goal. And it might be the primary reason for his demise. Like we talked about at the beginning, it's possible that he had at one point been able to hear from God. His family had that conversion to Judaism. And so we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not he could hear from God or not. But let's assume that his conversion was real and he could hear from God. And that, you know, sparks a whole bunch of other questions. But the question for today is, Again, how does he go from Herod the Great to Herod the Murderer? How do you go from a genuine conversion to ordering the killing of babies? I would say it's likely that he had his holy sight atrophied. And his holy sight atrophying coincided with his self-preservation because you can really only worship one thing at a time. And so he had stopped giving his attention, maybe, to God. And with nowhere for his attention to go, it went inward on himself. And he became the idol of worship, his protection. His inner voice became the compass and guiding ruler for his life. As Romans 1 said, he had exchanged the glory of God for something else, and God gave him over to his sinful desires. And as a result, his heavenly senses withered away until he could no longer hear God. Maybe at one point he was bilingual in the language of heaven. By the time that that order to kill the babies came down, he had forgotten what God sounded like, or at the very least, had ceased obeying him. So what lesson can we learn from Herod? How can we prevent our holy sight from going awry? How can we prevent it from atrophying? Is there a practice we can use to keep ourselves tethered to the voice of God? To keep ourselves from becoming numb to the evil actions in the world and the evil actions that lie dormant maybe within us? Well, that's a leading question, but the answer is yes. Today, I would, I would present the spiritual practice of mindfulness, or maybe attentiveness, if that word mindfulness freaks you out. Reverend Adele Calhoun says this about mindfulness. It says, mindfulness, or attentiveness, is to simply live wholeheartedly in the present moment and to be alert to God and without judgment. That second part is really important. If you remember when we started the series, Michelle got up and she taught us about the Shema, which is a Jewish daily prayer. And she described how in the Shema, there's no delineation between seeing, hearing, and obeying God. They're all the same. Our culture has a plague where we often separate those things. We struggle to see, hear, and then to act and to move and to obey. We struggle to close that gap. And as Matthew 13, 15 says, we've closed our eyes and ears and our hearts have become calloused. Where's your heart been calloused? Where are your eyes closed and your ears shut? Mindfulness, then, is a key for us to wake up our senses. And unlike maybe the New Age version of it, which is focused only on looking inward or you know, kind of on our own circumstances, Christian mindfulness or attentiveness is just the practice of playing I spy with God in the world. I see you. Oh, I see you over there, God. Oh, I see you doing that in my life. It points the attention on God, not on us. 
And so it breaks us free from a life of autopilot and allows us to resist the urge to control or change our reality. It gives us freedom from our self-preservation and allows us to stay sensitive to the evil actions in the world. It gives us courage to look at that monster within us because we're, we're free from having to judge everyone and everyone's self. We're not the judge anymore. And so it gives us freedom from that self-condemnation, lets us put the fig leaf down, destroys the shackles of shame. It gives us holy sight to see a God who stops at nothing to win us back and claim us as our own. About 10 years ago, I, uh, I started going to counseling. Well, I guess before that I went to counseling too. But 10 years ago, I started this new type of counseling called EMDR. EMDR is an acronym, or I guess I think it's an acronym. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly. Acronym? Yeah, Kristen's saying yes. So it's initials. Sorry, thanks. Mark knows. It's, anyway, it doesn't spell a word. But EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, which is a mouthful. Just, that's probably why they say EMDR. Anyway, the idea with EMDR is it's, from my understanding, and counselors don't talk to me about this because I'm sure I'm getting this wrong, but there's, you have these trauma memories in your life, and you, you deal with these trauma memories, and one of the ways that you do it, at least with a Christian counselor, how I did it, was kind of through this practice of mindfulness, and also like prayer and some of these other things. But I hold these like two vibrating electrodes, and they kind of go back and forth, and the process usually sits where I, I'm sitting down, I close my eyes, and she asks me, the counselor, Think of this traumatic memory. So I'm thinking of this traumatic memory. And then the goal is, okay, now what happens? And now what do you see? And what's going on? And pray about that. And, and at the end of the, the time, the ideal outcome is that you have another memory that's then coupled with this traumatic memory. And it's been redeemed in some way. So that way when you look at the initial memory, it's paired with this other healing. And it's beautiful. And I had the, like one of the most incredible like daydreams or all these things that were awesome. So I'm doing this with uh, EMDR for probably a year and a half. And specifically, I'm doing it on trauma memories related to my mom. Because for those of you who don't know, my mom passed away when I was 17 from ovarian cancer. And so in this particular counseling session, I'm sitting there, and the, the memory that she has me bring to mind is the last memory I see of my mom. And I'm in my kitchen. My mom has passed away, and the hospice crew has put her on a gurney, and my dad is in the corner crying, and my brother is sitting quietly, and they cover her face with a sheet and roll her out. And that's the memory I start with. And then about an hour later, through this wild experience that I can only attribute to God, I finish with this memory, and I'm walking into a ballroom, beautiful ballroom. And uh, and my mom comes out, and she's like beautifully dressed, and we start dancing. And I don't know how to ballroom dance, but we're dancing. And after we're doing that, she's laughing. We're having a good time, and our, my childhood dog. Then all of a sudden shows up and he's like doing circles, jumping, and wants to dance. Beautiful. I coupled this traumatic memory with this beautiful memory. And now when I think of it, I think of something different. Or at least something in addition. And then we're going to fast forward, you know, three or four years later. And I'm going to all, the, all these weddings. Um, and as I was, pra I was funny, as I was practicing the sermon, I was like, why do people go to weddings? And then I had, 
I made some offhanded comment about sex, and I was like, this is why I manuscript, so I'm not going to say that today, but anyway. Uh, so, save myself from that. But it, anyway, so I'm, I'm at these weddings, and if you've been to weddings, there's always moments in weddings where uh, they have like a typical flow, and one of those is, is, you know, after they do kind of the ceremony, and then the reception, they have the first dance. You know, and then sometimes they do a father-daughter dance, and then sometimes they do mother-son dance. And I had gone to so many weddings, like 12 and two years, and every time I was like, this is agonizing for me. I'm never going to. And at this wedding in California, I begin to say that again and feel that, and it was like I was struck by lightning. And God goes, do you not see? Do you not see that I gave you the experience you'd never have? Do you not see that I, before you even knew what to pray, I knew your heart. Do you not see that I see you? Do you not see that I love you? And I'm a mess. So I run out. I can't even be around anyone. I fall on my knees and I start crying and crying and crying. And then another thought enters my, my brain and goes, did I, did I just make that up? And as soon as I say that, I open my eyes and right in front of me, there's like 20 deer. And at that time of my life, there was a really powerful verse in Psalms 42. It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, my God. And it was like Jesus saying, you have little faith. That's one of my treasures. And I tell you that story because it was a time in my life that I succeeded at the practice of mindfulness. I had spent so much regular time playing I spy or hunting, God, where are you, that I was able to see it, and still I almost missed it. And it makes me question and wonder, how many other times has my listening and seeing been rusty that I've missed it? Where was my attention misplaced? What was I blind to? Because my heavenly sight had atrophied. Because make no mistake, although mindfulness is an act of faith, it also is a lot of hard work, continual hard work. There's no shortcuts to this. You're not just going to wake up one day and be bilingual. It doesn't happen. If I told you to go home and learn Spanish overnight, you would say I was crazy. It takes a lifetime Years and years of trying, succeeding, pronouncing things right, mispronouncing, reading things right, misreading, taking steps forward, taking steps back, but in it and through it all, trusting God is leading you. He is patient with you. He's giving you grace throughout it. And so to take just one small step forward today, we're going to give a moment for this. As John Ortberg says, this moment is God's irreplaceable gift to you. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. Because that's what mindfulness starts with. It starts with becoming present. 
to the moment in front of it. And in it, my prayer is that it launches you into the gift that God sets before each of us. So if you feel comfortable, um, I'm going to ask that you just maybe close your eyes, take a deep breath. If you want to open up your hands in the kind of the posture of receiving. There's been so much speaking. And so this is an opportunity to just sit. To become present. What might God be showing to you? What might he be reminding you of? rest knowing that as much as we want to see he already sees us and all the shame that we feel he says I died for that